Amen. Keep your finger there in Matthew 11. We're going to go back there at the end. So I don't want you to lose your place. How in the world are you? Good. You look rested. That's good, especially for today. Today it's kind of the theme. Don't know if you can pick up on that. Don't know if you noticed. If you didn't know about the trunk or treat, all you had to do was drive up into the parking lot and see the shrapnel that was left over. Um, some children left here with a lifetime supply of candy last night. I may or may not have been responsible for some of it towards the end when we were trying to clean out what we had in reserve. So um, I promise if your kid came home with a whole box of candy, it wasn't because they stole it. Uh, it was gifted to them. And I know you were like, thanks for that gift. And I say, you are welcome. You are welcome. So we're going to be in Hebrews 4. <laughs> this is a complicated. This is as complicated as it's going to get, I think. Keep your finger or put a marker in Matthew 11 because we're going to go back there at the end. We're going to get to Hebrews 4, 1 through 11. But it's going to take me a while to get there. It's going to be like a long introduction and a short message. Okay? So you can sort of hold me to that. I don't know how unless you just stand up and walk out, which that's happened before. So you can do that. You're, you're invited to. Um, as you consider rest, I mean Mike read Matthew 11, probably the most popular passage about rest in Scripture. As you think about rest, ask yourself this question, how well do I rest? How well do, do I rest? Um, I think what you find in our culture, our society today, in our world today, rest is the thing that, that the world wants most. They're, they're, uh, you ask them, so how are you doing? Well, first answer, busy. Second answer, tired. The distant 13th answer might be, great, thank you, even though we know that one's a lie. Because the first two are actually pretty accurate. We're busy. We're, we're tired. We need rest. And in order to understand Hebrews 4, you need to understand a little bit more about that concept of rest. Not just society-wide or culturally driven, but also biblically speaking. You need to understand a little bit more about rest. What is rest? Is what is rest for you? I mean, for some of us, rest is literally just everything stops. I'm doing nothing. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to see anything. I literally just sit in a chair in a dark and quiet room. Some of you, rest is just doing something different. Some of you, rest is, so this is for me, sitting in a tree, pretending like I'm going to sh shoot deer. If I see deer. Otherwise, it's very restful. Or maybe you rest on the on the golf course. Maybe you rest by quilting. Maybe you rest by watching a football game, unless it's the, the Ravens. I'm sorry. I'm not getting a lot of rest this year either. Okay. Maybe it's taking a long walk. Maybe it's, I don't know, how do you rest? The idea of rest, the, the definition of rest is to cease work or movement in order to relax or to recover. To cease work or to cease movement in order to relax, refresh, or recover. The problem is if I cease movement, I will be asleep in a matter of seconds. So that's called narcolepsy. That's next week. I'm just kidding. Um, we all, we all kind of rest differently. But we're the most unrested people in all of history. There's a few reasons for that. We, we belong to a culture that chronically overworks, and we know it's bad for us. I mean, the... 
overworking and, and, and the busyness that we allow to crowd into our lives, the lack of margin we have in our lives is actually a factor in some of the most common ailments in our society. You, you, heart disease, cancer, uh, insomnia, lung disease, strokes, just to name a few. You can go back to some of the source of that being a result of busyness, a, a, a being overworked, a, a lack of rest. Studies show us that if you work an 11-hour day, you are 250% more likely to struggle with depression. By working an 11-hour day, you're 250% more likely to struggle with depression. And this is why. When you are working, you have stress. And when stress comes into your life, your body releases chemicals and hormones to help you counter that stress. And, and so by working an elongated day, what you are actually doing by pumping all of those chemicals and hormones into your body is you are poisoning yourself to death. Your body has no way to get rid of it. There's reasons we're driven to overwork. One reason, and this isn't the point for the morning, but I have to make sure I mention it, it's technology. Technology makes us always available. Some of you are attached to your phone like it's an IV. Some of you this morning have checked your phone a dozen times already. I see you. You just don't know how to function without it. But, but not only does it, do, does it make us always available, it makes work always available. And, and get this, here's the crazy part. Your phone might not even go off for work, and yet just the knowledge that it could create stress inside of us. Technology is certainly one of the things that leads us. Anxiety. How, do, how are we going to provide for ourselves? If I stop from being busy, if I stop working, when, where are we going to get what we, what we actually need? Because what we do is we see the things that we have uh, in direct proportion to how hard we work. So if we want nicer things, we need to work more. Or, or let's just be honest, if we just want to put clothes on our back and food on the table, we, we need to work more. So the anxiety of that comes along. The idea of, of our identity being wrapped up in what we do. I work in a, in a, in a field that is just rampant with this. If I go to a pastoral seminar or a pastoral conference like I was in the past week, when you talk to somebody, it's like, hey, my name is Frank, and what's your name? Okay, what do you do? Okay, and how many people are in your church? Because you're just constantly driven. Your identity is anchored to how successful you've become or how successful you are in the eyes of the world. So, so, so even if it's not pastoral ministry, in your own ministry at work, you, you, you put in the hours, you, you oftentimes do much more than is actually required so that you can be both seen as valuable and feel valued. And because work has become such a competitive sport, we tend to even inflate the number of hours we work because it makes us feel important. The Wall Street Journal article that I just uh, read this week, and it was fascinating to me, and the author said, you know, I thought people might inflate the hours. There's a whole study out there about, you know, doing a real live time study, and then the, the, the claim of the hours that they worked, and they compared the two, and it's, it's not very close. I mean, between 40 and 50 hours, those two numbers stay the same, but when somebody starts saying they worked 60 to 70 hours, they actually probably only worked 50 to 52 hours. It's fascinating. Um, this fellow said in the interviews, he asked somebody how many hours the guy worked in the week, and he said 196 that's hard, so there's only 168 hours in a week anyway. Um, <laughs> but work has become such a competitive sport, so we go so very hard at it. And here's the thing that you need to know, folks. God has an opinion about this. 
doesn't he? You look at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, as God is creating everything that we know. On the seventh day, it says that he rested. Exodus chapter 20 kind of lays this whole concept out. God has worked, God has created, God has found everything good, and now God has, has rested. So, so Exodus 20, verse 8, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days, do all your work then, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. And don't think you can trick me, God says. Not just you take a break, but don't send your son or your daughter out into the field, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the resident alien that's inside of your city gates, because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it to be holy. God rested on the seventh day. This is not a deep theological truth, but it is a profound one. You ready? God didn't rest because he was tired. It's not like he was like, oh, that sixth day really took it out of me. <laughs> no. God is a God who works. His works are perfect. His works are to be enjoyed. So he stops to enjoy that which he has finished. What God is doing in resting that seventh day, that Sabbath day, is he's, he's establishing a pattern, a picture. And I want you to think about it this way. He's establishing a shadow, a shadow of something far greater that is to come. And so when he says this shadow is important, and so he sets it aside as a, as a special day. And here's the crazy part. Exodus 20, where that passage came from, is where we are given the Ten Commandments. Moses comes off the mountain with the, the Ten Commandments. Do you understand that God put remember the Sabbath to keep it holy on the same level as don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. You think he has a strong opinion about it? Why would God put such an emphasis on it? I mean, think about it. Six, six days of work, one day of rest. But let's, be, let's just be honest. There's still more work to do on that seventh day, isn't there? There's, st there's still more to do. It's super inconvenient. I mean, who are we fooling? If, if you cut your productivity by, by one-seventh, that can make the difference between between survival and not surviving, but God says to his people, I want you to do this because I want to remind you that it's me doing the work, not you. The Sabbath rest is a declaration of trust. You do know you're not the one that keeps the world running, right? You do know that you're actually not even the one who really provides for your family, right? You do know you're not the one that keeps projects moving forward. You, you do know that you're not holding up like Atlas, the world, like, oh, this is so hard, but I got this. You do know you're not the one that's going to defeat all of your enemies, right? Are you resting in that? Um, I think I have time for this. I was doing my own reading this morning, and I started Psalms again, and I got to Psalm 3. This is fascinating. Dave, David is... David, the context of Psalm 3 is, is David's son, Absalom, has thrown a coup. And so David's son, Absalom, has gathered a number of people who are now rebelling against David as king, right? In Psalm 3, this is the word of David as he's is facing these difficult times with his son, Absalom, who's about to attack him with his people. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there's no help for him in God. So basically people are saying to him, you just give it up, David. You ain't got a chance. But you, my Lord are a shield around me, my glory, 
the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord. He answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I'll not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. And hey, he's not exaggerating. There are literally thousands of people who are standing against him. And yet, I'll take a nap because I know who's got this. How well do you sleep? Would you be able to sleep if there was thousands upon thousands of people coming to to take your life? Would you be able to be like, okay, guys, I'm going to go take a nap. I'll be back in a couple hours. Is that you? Come on, be honest. Most of you are like, I got a paper due next week. I can't even catch a wink. And here David is so trusting in the God who has called him that he knows he can commit all those things into his hands. But one of the reasons to rest is a declaration of trust. Another reason to rest is it's a time to remember our salvation. In Deuteronomy 5, um, it's the re-giving of the law. And so it goes through the same commands about the Sabbath. And then verse 15, it says this. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the, the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That's why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. See, he gives you the, the second reason right here. It's a time to remember your salvation. He said, yeah, I want you, as you take this Sabbath rest, as you get away from work, and you sit down in solitude, maybe even silence, as you rest, what I want you to remember is that time in, in Egypt when Moses showed up and led you out. And, the, and I want you to remember how God did that for you as you Sabbath. And let me ask you a question, and maybe you can play around with this. You ready? Here we go. So picture this for a minute. How did Israel contribute to their rescue from Egypt? I mean, what part did they play in the Exodus? Yeah, no. It's not like Moses is like, all right, guys, listen, we need as many frogs as you can get. Or then, <laughs> then you get to the other one, they're like, all right, tonight we kill all their cattle. Go! Or they get to the Red Sea, he's like, hey, you guys, over there, you guys, over there, face each other, now blow as hard as you can, and the water will stand up and we'll walk right through. No, they didn't play any part in their rescue. God did it all himself. With a strong arm, sorry, a strong hand and an outstretched arm. I love that visual. I love that visual. This is God taking his people out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Strong hand. That's daddy holding on to the kid by the wrist like, you ain't going anywhere, kid. Last night, saw a lot of that. It's like, come on, let's go. Come on. No more candy. Stay away from that pastor guy. He's got another bag of candy. Strong hand. Outstretched arm. You're clearing the way. God walked them out of Egypt like this. Get out of the way. Boom. We're coming through. Nothing's stopping us. That's how God delivered his people from Egypt. God says, what I want you to do is build into your schedule time to remember when you were a slave. And I rescued you. And I made you my child. And I want you to think about that. Your, that work that I did for you was independent of anything you did yourself. And if he rescued you when you were a helpless slave, he is most certainly going to take care of you now that you're his child. Biblical rest is about more than just taking time off. Biblical rest means to stop working, to rest in God's provision for you, remembering how he has set you free from slavery. And that Sabbath rest, that biblical rest, is a shadow that points us to Jesus Christ.
So remember, in Hebrews, the author is writing to a group of people who are tempted to turn their back on Jesus, to return to the ways of Judaism, the sacrificial system, the, 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 the days of celebration, um, the, the empty ritualism that was now there because Jesus had fulfilled the law. They wanted to turn back to the law. They wanted to turn their back on what actually ends up being real rest and, and real freedom. They wanted to go back to something that was more comfortable, something that was more familiar. But it's lesser. It's lesser than the best thing that's there. It's, it's like filling up at the salad bar before you get all the meat. It's like a child playing with the wrapping paper after you spent that much money on the gift. Okay, here, here's one for you. It's Apple product packaging. So, I would hazard a guess that there are people in here who have kept the packaging for your latest Apple pr product because it's so nice. It's so well put together. It's so solid. It feels good, too. It's got all of these really cool things, and you can't just bring yourself to throw away the packaging because you're like, this package. See, some of you are confessing right now to the person sitting next to you. They're like, yeah, if you're looking, you can't bring yourself to throw it away. Hey, guess what? It's trash. <laughs> it's absolute trash. In every sense of the word, it's trash. It's meant to be trash. And yet we're like, this is so nice. You do know you paid $600 for the thing that was inside of it, right? Probably play with that a little bit too. Don't settle for just the packaging. Don't settle for a shadow. See, God is inviting us to real rest. That was the introduction. Here we go. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. Don't settle. Don't fall short for just the shadow. He uses the word here, though the author uses the word here, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. I think that's a little weak. Some translations say, you know, be careful. I think that's even weaker. Uh, I better understood that word is, is let us fear, let us be afraid. So, so therefore, since the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you be found to have fallen short. There's a huge difference of be careful and be afraid, right? Okay, there, there's a dog right there. Hey, guys, hey, guys, just, hey, there, there's a dog there. Be careful. Just be careful. That's very different than, look out! It's a pit bull! It's coming for you! Right? So if any of you are asleep, good morning. <laughs> You're at church. <laughs> but, but the reality is, is that we were like, oh, just be careful. No, 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 no. The author says, take unbelief that seriously. That you are terrified that it could actually creep up from within you. Be afraid that you could actually turn your back on it and be like, no, no, this is better than Jesus. This is better than Jesus. Be terrified because that's how desperately wicked our hearts are. Verse 2, for we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. That's the unbelief we need to fear. Here's the children of Israel offered the, the, the hope 
of, of an escape from Egypt and entrance into their own land, and they didn't benefit from the offer because it didn't change the way they lived. Even though the good, hey, all right, we're getting a good rate. We're going to clear out all the shrapnel from last night. Praise God. Praise the Lord. So, 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 so the, 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 they didn't benefit from the, from the offer because it didn't change anything about how they lived. They, they get right up to the river. Think about that. They get right up to the river. They cross the river. That's Canaan. That's, that's the promised land right there. They get right up on the river. Like, okay, we're getting ready to go in. Let's send in the spies. So those 12 dudes go in, and they, they check out the land from top to bottom, and they, then what they're seeing is it's like this thing is flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's as enriched as it possibly could be. They find grapes, and they take a cluster of grapes, singular cluster of grapes. And it says they hang it between two men because it takes two men to carry it out of the promised land. This thing's huge. And they come back, and the people are waiting to hear the word, and it's interesting. They come back to report to Moses, and, and it says all of the assembly of Israel gathers around because they want to hear. This is the land we've been, we've been wandering for. This is the land that God has promised to us. This is our land. We are excited to hear what you have to say. And the ten spies stand in front of the people. And they say, hey, guys, listen, okay. Those are some big grapes, aren't they? Milk, honey, it's pretty crazy over there. You remember? You remember, uh, remember the plagues? Remember the plagues? Okay, yeah, yeah. You remember the Red Sea? How God, yeah, okay, cool. You, you remember the manna. You remember the, the pillar of fire, the, the pillar of smoke. You, you remember God's holy and powerful protection over us as we came through the wilderness, right? You remember all that? Remember all that? Okay, all right. As we consider going to the land, that, those things were all amazing, what we just remembered. Those things were amazing, but uh, they're like seven or eight feet tall over there. We ain't going. I mean, God can part the water, but he can't take down Shaq. Be terrified that your heart can reach that level of unbelief. Fear that level of unbelief. Fear, excuse me, parents, that level of stupidity. And yet we do it every day. The author then traces the biblical history to help them understand why that's even possible. Why, why rest for us is even possible. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken, it cracks me up, this author has no idea, like he would fail at Bible drills every time. Somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day, and on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Come on, that was not even hard. Anyway, again, verse 5, in that passage he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day. Today. He specified this speaking through David after such a very long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God wouldn't have spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did 
from his. So the author puts some pieces together, and, and he says, listen, when the people came to the promised land and rejected my, op, my, my, my command for them to go in, rejected the opportunity to go in, you know, understanding that I would protect them, I would care for them, I would provide for them, when those people did that, then the command or the, the judgment from God was exactly that, they will not enter my rest. And then centuries later, in the Psalms, David says, hey, you can enter God's rest today. And so, so that's not very, it, it seems confusing when you read it the first time, but what the author is trying to do is, hey, the rest wasn't the promised land. God wouldn't have used David to offer a promise of rest centuries later to a mess of other people if the rest was actually the promised land. So, so this offer of real rest isn't found in the promised land. It's, it's something far greater because the promised land was just a shadow. And that rest is available to you, he says. Verse 10. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. And I'm going to give you rest, Jesus said. What does that word weary mean? It means to be tired, fatigued. It's a, it's a bone tired that comes as the result of a hard or difficult endeavor. It implies the reality of difficulties and trouble. This word used outside of Scripture means a beating, to be tired as though you had been beaten. Come to me, all of you who have just been beaten down, and I will give you rest. Any of you felt like that? Any of you felt like that? Come to me, Jesus says. He doesn't say come to church. He doesn't say come to baptism. He doesn't say come to catechism or to a, a service somewhere or community groups or, or come to your pastor or come to your Bible reading. Jesus says, come to me. Those things are all good, but they can't bring you the rest that Jesus brings you. He says, come to me for rest. Trust in Jesus. Lean on Jesus. Run to Jesus, and there's, there's real relationship to be had, and that relationship will bring you the rest. Why? Because when you run to Jesus, what you find is his righteousness becomes yours. The work that he did throughout his life, living the perfect life, perfectly fulfilling the law, continuing to, to keep his head down and just continuing to obey each and every step of the way, and then laying down his life for your sin, Purchased your freedom. Purchased your rest. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account if you are in him. And that's what matters. That's where real rest is at. That's what this verse is saying. You come to me and you can do the biblical rest thing. Cease from working and enjoy the fruits of the labor. But we're enjoying the fruit of the labor that Jesus provided for us. It's so much better than the fruit of the labor we could provide. We can rest because Christ is our righteousness. We can rest because Christ becomes 
our identity. Listen, if you're in Jesus, you don't have to justify your existence by doing. Many of us just keep spinning the wheels because we want to be accepted. We want to be known as gospel rest is that Jesus has set us free from that. Gospel rest is knowing and embracing the fact that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to make Jesus love you more. There's absolutely nothing you can do to make Jesus love you less. You're not a slave anymore. You're not bound by sin. You're not bound by by being called a slave anymore. You're an adopted child of God. And everything about your life has has less to do with what you do and more to do with what he's done for you. That's rest. Jesus says, come come to me. Don't come to more activity. Come to me. Come to me and know that you are loved. Now, why can't we rest in that? Why can't we rest in that? Think about it. Jesus says it so clearly, so many times in his word to us. You are loved You're my beloved. God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, this this is love, and yet we can't rest in that. Why? Because we chase shadows. We attempt to embrace the shadows. We pursue the lesser and forget that he's greater. Why can't we rest? When chasing shadows, we believe it's, it's easier to believe that we are useful than to believe we are loved. Lay down your work. Because the work that matters has already been done for you. Stop your striving. It's finished. You are loved by the King of Kings, the, 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 the absolute Lion of Judah. You, you are loved by the Lamb of God who knew who you would be when he laid down his life for your sins. Oh, but I got to do something. No, no, stop. <laughs> I, this, is, this is a weird thing to say. It's, it's reality. He doesn't need you. He wants you. And he loves you. So rest in his love. Stop chasing things that make you feel like you're being useful. Stop chasing the, I must do, I must do, I must do. And instead of doing, try being for a little while. Be his child. Be the object of his love and affection. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Friends, stop chasing shadows. And embrace the one that's greater. He has a name. And it's Jesus. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. 
Thank you for the work of your son. Thank you for the death of your son. Thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to know more fully how loved we are. I pray for the soul that is among us that needs rest desperately. Would you, would you open their eyes to see that Jesus came so that they might have perfect rest, eternal rest. God, I ask that you would just continue to watch over us, reminding us of how good we have it in Jesus. Protect us from the foolishness of unbelief. Protect us from running to any other. There is no other. So may we continue to find our righteousness, our identity, and our rest in Christ and in Christ alone. It's in his wonderful name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Would you stand? Would you sing with us?